Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Sal Stefano on the Resistance Training Revolution. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our revamped website at booksonpod.com. You can now search past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or by subject. For instance, check the health and fitness or history sections for my conversation with Dan Lieberman on Exercise. This is Dan Lieberman. I'm author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling, and I've totally enjoyed this great conversation. Hello, readers. Sal Stefano is a personal trainer, co-founder of Mind Pump Media, co-host of the Mind Pump Podcast, and the author of The Resistance Training Revolution, the no-cardio way to burn fat and age-proof your body in only 60 minutes a week. Sal, thank you for the time. How you doing today? I'm doing really good, man. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. So you've trained people from all walks of life, including athletes and bodybuilders. So why did you gear this book toward the average person? Well, actually, I did train athletes and I did train some people who wanted to compete. But the vast majority of clients that I worked with were the average person. Uh, I worked in big box gyms when I first started. Then I managed and grand opened big box gyms. And then I owned a wellness facility for years. And I did this for over two decades. And in the wellness facility, of course, I had personal training, uh, massage therapy, acupuncture. Uh, we had some gut testing, hormone testing. And the focus was to really help uh, the average person develop a good relationship with exercise and nutrition so they could improve their health long term. Now, of course, within that, I dealt with uh, weight loss and obesity, which is the, the most common goal. Um, but ultimately, really what it turned out to be or, or, or what turned out to be successful was helping people develop long-term sustainable habits and behaviors so that they could make this stick. Uh, that's the biggest problem uh, with, uh, with people working out and, and trying to get fit and healthy is that you know people lose weight every year. I think millions of Americans lose weight every year, but they all gain it back. So the big issue is how do we maintain this. And I think I figured it out. I, I, at least towards the end of my career, I really put pieced together the reasons why we were so unsuccessful uh, for the most part, and also why or how to become successful with the new way of doing it, which, uh, you know, which I talk about in the book. Yeah, I think this book uh, lays things out very clearly for, for folks. And you actually break it down into three different parts. Part one is the metabolic fat burning solution. And chapter one is titled The Cardio Craze, Why It's Making You Fat. I'm guessing this chapter is receiving a, as much buzz as just about anything you put in this book. Exercise can help speed up a person's metabolism, but not all exercise. Why does cardio not have this metabolic effect? Well, the problem is that we have valued exercise um, primarily for the amount of calories that the ex exercise itself burns while you perform it, um, which ignores the real value of exercise, which is how does this particular activity, how does this particular workout get my body to adapt, and then what do those adaptations mean? So uh, if we, if we kind of try to paint the picture or, or describe the context, it'll make a little bit more sense, right? So if we're looking at the, the, the modern health issues that plague modern societies, which include everything from heart disease to certain types of cancers, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, diabetes, uh, these are problems that tend to plague modern societies. And then, of course, there's that, the umbrella condition of obesity. 
And in order to lose weight, you need to make sure that you eat less calories than you burn or burn more calories than you take in, which is true. But the problem is, again, that the exercise portion of that formula has basically been valued as how many calories does this workout burn? In fact, workout programs and videos and machines advertise that. Like, do this piece of equipment. It burns X amount of calories per hour, and it burns more calories than this other activity. And we think that that's all the value. We're, and again, we're completely ignoring how that activity gets our bodies to adapt. So when we look at cardio, cardio does burn the most amount of calories per time being spent compared to other forms of exercise. In other words, an hour of running will burn more calories than an hour of weightlifting or an hour of yoga or Pilates, for example. Uh, but here's the thing that, again, that we need to pay attention to. Well, first off, the amount of calories that you actually burn while you exercise – isn't that much, especially if you're only working out a few days a week, really. I mean, an, an hour of real intense cardio will maybe burn 400, 500 calories. Uh, by the way, those cardio machines lie to you. The ones that tell you that you burn 800 calories in an hour, that's totally false. You're burning about three, 400 calories. That's not a lot. Uh, you know, three days a week of that, that's 1500 calories divided by seven days in the week. That's like, you know, that's like a couple bites of pizza every single day, really. It's, it's really not much. But again, we need to look at how the exercise gets our bodies to adapt. And what cardio does, when you do exercise, your body senses it as a stress, and then it adapts to get better at that particular activity. So with cardio, if I go for a run, initially it's really challenging for me. Maybe I can only run a block. So my body builds endurance, and it learns how to become more efficient at this particular activity. It also doesn't require much strength at all. This is an important uh, footnote. You don't need a lot of strength to have endurance for cardiovascular activity, as evidenced by long-distance runners. If you look at long-distance runners, they have very little muscle on their bodies. They're not very strong, but they have tremendous endurance. So how does your body improve endurance, don't need much strength, but also needs to become more efficient at this particular activity? Well, it pairs muscle down is what it does. Why is pairing muscle down a part of the adaptation? Muscle is expensive, metabolically active tissue. If your body is trying to get better at doing cardio, what it's also trying to do is burn less calories while you do it. It's literally trying to make you a more efficient cardio machine. Studies support this, right? So when we look at studies where cardio is combined with diet for weight loss, when we look at the weight loss that happens with individuals, roughly half of the weight that's being lost is muscle. Um, the body literally pairs that muscle down. By the way, when half the weight you lose is muscle, you actually maintain your same body fat percentage. In other words, if you lose 10 pounds and 5 pounds is fat and 5 pounds is muscle, you're the same flabbiness, smaller version, slower metabolism version of yourself, right? So you're smaller, same body fat percentage, because remember, really, your total body fat is not important. It's the body fat percentage. Uh, that you have on your body. In other words, you know, what makes a 200 pound man lean, if I took that body fat and put it on a 100 pound man, that would make him uh, not as lean, right? Because there's less overall body mass. But you also. You're essentially becoming more skinny fat, correct? Exactly. And you have a slower metabolism now because you've lost muscle. So what ends up happening is people do cardio as part of their weight loss formula and they initially lose weight, half of it being muscle. But then they plateau really hard because their metabolism is now slowed down. So it's like, I got to do more cardio or I need to eat less. And that continues. That process continues. 
And it's not hard to see how unsustainable that is. Uh, how do you maintain that? You know, it's like, okay, I lost 30 pounds, but in order to maintain this weight loss, I have to eat a fraction of what I ate before. And I'm surrounded by, you know, because I live in a modern society, lots of really tasty, easily accessible food. Oh, and I need to work out every single day just to maintain this. It's, it's impossible for the average person. It's just not, and we know this, the, the fail rate on for weight loss is you know, close to 90%. Most people gain the weight back. So it's not an effective way to, uh, to lose weight. And then now why is it making you fat? Well, eventually you gain the weight back because it's hard to sustain. But the weight you gain back is not muscle. You lost that muscle. When you gain weight back, it's all body fat. So you lost 10 pounds, five of it muscle, five of it fat. You gain the 10 pounds back later on, all of it body fat. You actually end up in a worse position. This is why, you know, and this may apply to some someone watching or listening to this podcast, after years of going through this process of, okay, I'm going to try running again. Okay, I'm going to try dieting again. Lose weight. Uh-oh, I gained it back because it's not sustainable. Let me do that again. After three or four cycles of this, it's like, why is my metabolism so slow? Why why is it so hard for me to gain to lose a single pound all of a sudden, right? So that's why the cardio craze is a, a big problem. It's the wrong exercise solution uh, for our health and obesity epidemic. Now, I do want to be clear, okay? I want to make sure I say this before people get the wrong idea. All forms of exercise and activity, if applied appropriately, have value, okay? So cardio still has value. What I'm saying is if it's the only form of exercise that you're going to use for your weight loss goals, you're probably going to fail. You're probably going to end up with a slower metabolism and it's going to be very hard to sustain. Now, if we replace cardio with strength training or resistance training, we get very different results. The resistance training workout doesn't burn as many calories, but again, that's not important. What it does is it tells your body to build strength and build muscle. The weight loss that you initially get from doing resistance training with diet is slower, so you might not lose as much weight on the scale. Part of that reason is because it's all body fat that you lost, so you don't lose any muscle. In fact, oftentimes you gain muscle in the early stages, so you might have lost six pounds of body fat but gained four pounds of muscle, so on the scale it says you only lost two pounds. By the way, muscle is very dense, so if you gain 10 pounds of muscle right now, you wouldn't look any bigger you would just feel much tighter because it doesn't take up much space. It's very, very dense, especially in comparison to uh, to body fat. But what's happened is you've lost some body fat, maybe built a little bit of muscle. Now you have a faster metabolism. And over time, when you when you go through this process, at the end of your fat loss journey, you lose 30 pounds, for example, you potentially and oftentimes end up eating more than you did when you first started to maintain your new lean sculpted body. It's much more sustainable. It's a much more sustainable approach. Um, and there's much more uh, that goes into this. For example, uh, with strength training or resistance training, you don't need to do a lot of it to reap the benefits. Uh, the average person a couple days a week will get plenty of the muscle building and strength building and metabolism boosting effects of strength training. It also requires very little to maintain. In fact, I just read a study that shows that Whatever you do to build strength and muscle roughly requires about one-ninth, almost a tenth, but roughly one-ninth of the same amount of work to maintain. So you go on vacation, you take some time off. Uh, it doesn't require nearly as much work to keep 
that muscle on your body to maintain that metabolism boost, probably due to the the uh, what's called muscle memory, which is again a very uh, well-known and observed effect where if you build muscle the first time and let's say you lose it, building it back the second time, it's much easier, much faster process. So it's just, it's the exercise solution for what we're dealing with. And it just hasn't been advertised that way. Nobody's really looked at it that way. And for people who are unfamiliar with resistance training, simply put, it's movements with resistance, whether that's weights, bands, kettlebells, even one's own body weight. And resistance training does so much good. As you just laid out, it burns fat through faster metabolism, builds strength, sculpts the body, makes bones stronger, provides for a healthier sex drive, eases pain, and even brings hormones back into balance. How does it bring hormones back into balance? No, no, I'm glad you brought that up. So first off, you're right. It's movements with resistance, but there's more to that. It's movements with resistance done specifically to build strength and muscle because you could take a pair of dumbbells and do circuit training, which is essentially cardio with weights. So you can definitely use resistance training devices in ways that don't make it resistance training. So it has to be done in a way specifically to build strength and muscle. And typically what it looks like is you do you know, a set of 10 repetitions and then you rest a minute and then you do another set. This is very, very different than the constant movement that we see with cardiovascular activity. That rest period is actually what makes it build strength and muscle. The nonstop activity is what makes something more cardio or endurance-based. Thank you for okay. clarifying that. No problem. Okay, so you talked about hormones. This to me is by far the most fascinating aspect of resistance training. What we find in studies with resistance training, let's talk about men for a second. Strength training reliably raises testosterone in men. Reliably. In fact, it raises testosterone regardless of where your testosterone levels are. So if it's low testosterone, it'll raise it. If your testosterone's high, it still raises it. This is very different than anything else. For example, there are herbs and supplements that'll raise testosterone only if you have low testosterone, right? Strength training or resistance training always raises testosterone in men. It also increases androgen receptor density. So androgen receptors are the, 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 the areas of the body where testosterone attaches to in order to exert its effects. In other words, if you have more androgen receptors, your current levels of testosterone become much more effective and much more powerful. Okay, So strength training or resistance training reliably increases androgen receptor density uh, in the body. It also reliably, in fact, the most reliable way to increase or improve insulin sensitivity is to build muscle. Simply adding muscle, you will see an improvement in your insulin uh, sensitivity. In fact, there's studies on the severely obese where they don't lose any weight at all. They just gain muscle. And we see improvements in insulin sensitivity. This is because t- uh, muscle is very insulin sensitive. It partially stores glycogen. So in your body, whenever you eat a carbohydrate or sugar, it gets processed into an energy known as glycogen. Your liver stores a lot of it, but your muscles also store some of this. So the more muscle you have, it's like having a bigger gas tank to store these sugars. And then also, uh, muscle again is also just insulin sensitive. So we see improvements in insulin sensitivity. This is very good because insulin resistance, which is the opposite, it contributes to inflammation, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, 
Uh, studies show that uh, resistance training is the only form of exercise to date that has been shown to stop the progression of the amyloid plaque development, which leads to Alzheimer's, which is remarkable. We've never seen anything do this uh, but resistance training. Um, in women, we see resistance training balancing out estrogen and progesterone. In both men and women, we see a balancing of cortisol. Cortisol is that stress hormone. It's necessary to have, but if it's too high too long, it literally eats up muscle. And it promotes fat storage, especially in the belly or visceral body fat uh, around the organs. Resistance training also increases growth hormone levels in the body. So essentially, resistance training produces more youthful levels of hormones. All right, so let's talk about other forms of exercise now in comparison. Now, to be clear, any, any improvement in health will typically improve your hormone profile. Okay, so regardless of what you do, if your health improves, we typically will see an improvement in your hormones. But no form of exercise reliably does this uh, nearly to the effect that strength training does. In fact, cardio has been shown to uh, relatively consistently lower testosterone in men. Actually start to see that in men when that's your only and primary form uh, of exercise. In women... We see elevations of cortisol, and we see sometimes this imbalance of estrogen and progesterone. So the question remains, why? Like, why does resistance training do this, and why don't other forms of exercise do this? Okay, so earlier I talked about how studies show that if you diet and then you do cardio, we see muscle loss uh, early on in a person's routine. And that's, again, part of the body's adaptation process to make it burn less calories, right? Um, in, with resistance training, we see reliably a gain in strength and muscle. Now think of the hormones that are associated with muscle loss in the body, higher cortisol in men, lower testosterone. Like it would be hard for your body to lose muscle if your testosterone was really high, right? It would be easy to lose muscle if your cortisol went up. It would be hard to lose muscle if your insulin sensitivity was incredible, because insulin is actually quite anabolic. Um, in fact, bodybuilders use insulin in combination with other drugs to build those huge muscles that they have. Um, it, growth hormone has to lower in order to lose muscle. So when you're doing other forms of exercise and you're asking your body to get rid of muscle, your body actually changes its hormone profile in order to accomplish this. Well, with, with resistance training, when we're building muscle, it does this as well, just in a different way. In men, if I'm telling my body to build muscle, my body says we need to increase testosterone to allow this to happen. We need to increase androgen receptor density. We have to improve insulin sensitivity. In women, we have to balance out estrogen and progesterone. We have to create more balance with cortisol. We have to increase or improve our growth hormone profile. So this is why uh, resistance training is such an effective form of exercise for producing kind of these youthful levels of hormones that everybody's looking for. It can also help with mood. And while I'm glad we're in an age where people can more comfortably talk about mental health issues, it's frustrating, Sal. Improved exercise and diet are rarely discussed as a big part of the solution. What has research shown on how resistance training improves things like anxiety and depression? It's actually uh, when they compare exercise and, uh, and nutrition or even just exercise alone to the most commonly used antidepressant 
medications and anti-anxiety medications, they are at least as good at treating these low to moderate levels of anxiety and depression, which is what most people have, right? So we're not talking about the extreme cases where people need to be hospitalized, but we're talking about the types of depression that, that most people will go to the doctor and get treatment for. Uh, exercise has been shown to be at least as effective in the short term, but here's the kicker. In the long term, it actually starts to trend better, okay? S medications sometimes start to lose some of their effect in some people. In other people, it stays relatively stable. But exercise, uh, it, when done properly, t you're, you're, the effects tend to improve, you know? You get better effects from exercise five years down the line than you did in the first four months. So it's, it's not only a, 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 it's been shown to be a great short-term solution for feeling those ways, but it's an excellent long-term solution. It's, it's more of a solution than a treatment for symptoms that, you know, that we, that's, that's how medications tend to be used as treatment of symptoms. Exercise tends to solve the root causes, at least from a physical level of, the, of those feelings. Chapter four is secret weapons to transform your body. One of the weapons is something that 18-year-old me would strongly and wrongly disagree with. Why is repping to failure something a person should avoid when resistance training? So repping to failure is, uh, let's say I was doing um, a set of squats. Uh, repping to failure would be doing as many squats as I possibly could until I couldn't do another squat at all. And then I'd stop, right? So I went to failure. I did the squats until I failed. Well, it's too much intensity. It, it's not necessary. Studies support this. Training to failure, it produces uh, worse results than training with high intensity but not going to failure. It also tends to fry the central nervous system of the body. You know, when, when you exercise, you don't just train your muscles. You also train the central nervous system, which is what communicates to your muscles. And when you fail, it's, it's just an excessive stress. Here's what ends up happening when you do it. You don't get any better results, but you increase the amount of recovery that's required before your next workout. And then you can run into the problem of your body prioritizing healing over adaptation. So adaptation would be, I'm getting stronger and I'm building muscle. Okay, Healing would be, we have damage, we need to heal, so we're back to baseline. So if I'm pushing the intensity too much, which going to failure definitely is most of the time for most people, then what ends up happening is my body's only worried about healing and it can't adapt. And so I get stuck in this, you know, this recovery trap where I go to the gym, I work out super intense, I go to failure, I get really sore, then my soreness goes away, I go back to the gym and I repeat the cycle and I never get stronger. I never improve. All I'm doing is tearing down and, and healing, tearing down and healing with very little to no progress. That's what failure training tends to do. It tends to limit your body's ability to adapt. So what I tell people to do is to train till there are you know a few reps short of failure. So stop when you think you could do maybe three or four more repetitions. Or even better, practice exercises rather than use them to work out. So rather than do squats to make my legs real tired and shaky, I think to myself, I'm going to squat uh, and, and just do them really good and practice them and get really good at doing this particular movement. That's the best approach, uh, in, in my strong opinion. If you practice exercises and you go in to practice the technique and the form and get good at them, you'll get much better consistent results long term.
You sprinkle in raw fitness truth throughout these pages, Sal. This includes another myth that's busted about soreness after working out. Other than maybe after the first time you've done a specific exercise in a while, is soreness a poor indicator for working out for the reasons that you just described with going to failure? Yeah, soreness doesn't tell you that you had a good workout. Uh, If it tells you anything at all, it tells you that you did too much. The way you should feel after a workout, and this is just a really good rule of thumb, you should feel more energy at the end of the workout than you did at the beginning of the workout. You shouldn't feel like you just got your butt kicked. I know people take pride in that feeling of getting their butt kicked, like they just finish a spin class and they're they're walking out and they're like, oh my gosh, I survived. Like that, what a great workout. Okay, I get taking pride in the fact that you survived this intense endeavor, but that's not going to get you uh, better results. Definitely not in the long term. What you're looking for is at the end of your workout, you should leave and you should be like, man, I feel energized. Like I feel better than I went into that workout feeling. And then as far as the days following, a little bit of soreness is okay. Like, like oh, you know, if I stretch or move, like I feel like I, I'm a little sore, but that's about it. Or no, no soreness at all. You should not feel sore to the touch or you can't walk or you can barely move. That's clearly a sign that you did too much. And, it, and again, it, it gets you stuck in that, that breakdown recovery trap where you just heal and you never really allow your body to adapt. Part three of this book, the final part, essentially, is intuitive nutrition for permanent fat loss. You state very clearly that intuitive eating is the only diet a person needs. So what is intuitive eating? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question, right? So intuitive eating is really behavior-based. It's not food-based. It's not you know macronutrient-based. It's not calorie-based. It's really based around your behaviors and learning to listen to your body. And and this is a this is a bit of a process, okay? So it's not as easy as saying don't eat carbs or you know eat low fat or only eat you know celery juice or whatever silly, you know, diet that's out there. That never works, right? Because it, none of them work. No people go on them, they lose weight or then they end up going off. Intuitive eating is much more of a sustainable uh, kind of lifestyle approach. And it begins with you or you know, or per someone listening or watching, understanding and learning the real values of food, all the values of food. So so uh, to give you, you know, kind of uh, an example, we've most of us have learned to value food mainly and primarily for one thing. It's palatability, right? So how good does this food taste or how enjoyable is it to eat? We don't really think of any other values. I mean, we loosely understand this is maybe healthier, this is maybe not as healthy, and this one I think is better with protein, and this one might have a little bit more sugar. But really, when you're talking to your friends or when you're thinking about what you want for breakfast or what you want for dinner, really the main value that you're considering is which one's going to be the most pleasing and enjoyable uh, to eat. Now, there's nothing wrong with valuing food for its palatability. That is one of the values of food. There's definitely nothing wrong with enjoying eating something, but it's only one value. It's very unbalanced to have that one value. There are many other values to food. Uh, you know, to give you an example, it used to always uh, shock me at well, at least early on, and then later on it became you know just kind of something I expected when people would say things to me like, you know, I get a client. 
and I'd go down the checklist of, you know, their health and they would say something like, oh yeah, I have heartburn every day, but I take, you know, Prilosec daily or I take Tums every single day. And not realizing that maybe the foods that they're eating are the reason that they have this kind of constant heartburn. Or maybe somebody has a tendency towards constipation or maybe somebody's skin, uh, you know, breaks out or maybe someone feels very fatigued and sluggish after lunch. Like, we don't connect food to really anything else aside from its palatability. Now, why is this important? Because when you start to connect food to its other values, you start to actually crave foods for some of those values. You know, like when I go on a, on a business trip, uh, one of the things I crave most when I get home is a big bowl of vegetables, mainly because when I'm on vacation or I'm on a business trip, especially a business trip, it's very hard to come across really good vegetables. I mean, I could typically find steak. I could typically find maybe some unprocessed foods, but it's really hard to get a lot of vegetables uh, at restaurants. And my, my digestion tends to suffer as a result. I could feel my digestion get a little sluggish. So when I get home, I literally crave the bowl of vegetables. Now, I don't crave the vegetables because they taste better than pizza, right? But I crave them because I've now connected this very uh, important value to this food. By the way, food manufacturers have been doing this to us forever. It's not I'm not just making this up. This is based off of how effective marketing is. Like like for example, you'll never see a, a food company showing someone on the toilet, you know, having diarrhea by eating their product. They'll never make that association because the second they do, their sales will drop, right? Or you know, look at beer companies, right? It's always like at a party or you know, you're at the beach and there's hot girls around you or, you know, you know, something like that, right? They're making associations, right? Associations are very powerful. Like think of the foods you crave at the movies, right? Popcorn. Like when do you crave buttered popcorn aside from the, the times you sit down to watch a movie? That's an association that they've made, right? What about birthday cake, right? Birthdays. It's, I, I tend to want birthdays at birthday cakes. Or if you're watching a football game, well, I want a beer and pizza, right? These are associations we made. So one part of intuitive eating is learning to make those associations, which requires you to become um, consciously conscious, right? So how do I feel? How do I feel before I eat? How do I feel while I eat? What am I noticing afterwards? Another thing is to cut out foods that, uh, that, that have been engineered to hijack your awareness or, or to, put, to put differently – Reduce or eliminate foods that have been engineered to make you overeat, okay? Heavily processed foods do this. That's what they're engineered to do. Studies now show, actually there's been quite a few studies on them, on this, now show that heavily processed food consumption will increase your daily calories by five to 600 calories a day. And they've tested this through really, really well done studies, controlled, right? They'll take two groups of people, they'll give them unlimited access to food, except one group has unlimited access to whole natural foods. So these are foods that typically have one ingredient. So like chicken, you know, uh, vegetables, apples, nuts, seeds, that kind of stuff. And then they'll have the other group and they'll have unlimited access to heavily processed foods, potato chips, Pop-Tarts, frozen pizza, that kind of stuff. By the way, they'll, they'll even make sure that the macronutrient profiles are very similar, okay? Then they'll take the groups, they'll leave them in there for 30 days, then they'll switch them. Then they'll have them switch, switch sides. Five to 600 more calories a day by eating heavily processed foods. That's because 
the research and development that goes into making heavily processed foods is uh, mainly goes towards making these foods so enjoyable to eat, so palatable that it literally overrides your satiety. So a whole natural food might make you full at some point where you're like, oh, I don't want any more. Whereas heavily processed foods, they've been engineered to go past that. So you end up eating more. And we've all experienced this, right? You're, you, you eat a dinner, you're full, I can't eat anymore. Then they bring out dessert and somehow you, you can eat more food all of a sudden. That's kind of that phenomenon that's happening. So cut those foods out so that you can start to become more aware of your natural signals and systems of satiety. You know, another thing that I talk about in the book is to eliminate distractions while you eat, right? Studies show that people will eat about 15% more calories when they're doing so in front of the TV or in front of their phone or their computer. So when you eat, turn everything off and just eat. And essentially what you're doing is you're becoming more in touch with your body because believe it or not, your body has natural barriers that make you eat more appropriately. We just hijack them with our distractions, with heavily processed foods, with the fact that we only value food for its palatability, um, and with many, many, many other things. So it is a process, but if you do this process, what you'll find is you'll develop kind of this natural balance with your diet. Now, you're not going to get shredded eating this way, but you will get to a very healthy, normal, lean body by ha- and it's also, and again, it's very sustainable because it's a much more natural approach. I want to get back to the intentionally addictive qualities of these hyper-processed foods for a second. You're a guy who reads a lot. Have you read Michael Moss's recent book, Hooked? It's all about the factors that go into food addiction. We actually had him on the podcast. We did. We, we, we interviewed him, and he's a, a journalist and has researched um, all of the things that food manufacturers do. And, you know, it's funny, like the, all the, the big tobacco executives, when tobacco got hit by government regulations, when it finally came out that they were lying and <laughs> that tobacco was extremely addictive and caused cancer, a lot of them moved over to the food industry. And uh, they, they, you know, their same skills were applied to, to food. So, and I don't want to paint them as evil. Really, they're just meeting market demand. Like, you know, if you want your food to sell, Make it as addictive as possible. And so that's what they've done. Well, it's also interesting that a lot of these big food companies had a heavy financial stake in a lot of the diet foods that came out in the 1990s and 2000s and whatnot. But there was a specific part of this book, and I actually discussed this with Michael Moss when he was on my podcast as well, where scientists took two groups of fruit flies They fed one a normal diet, and the other one they fed a normal diet but with added artificial sweeteners. And the group with the fake sugar ended up going crazy. They acted like they were starving. They couldn't go to sleep, and they were buzzing around nonstop. And I mention all this because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Should we start considering adding amounts of artificial sweeteners on our nutritional labels? Because I see a lot of people trying to cut those corners by still consuming something that tastes good that's not water, it's not black coffee or tea per se. And I feel like that's doing more damage than a lot of folks realize right now. It is. It is. Now, now barring the potential physiological effects, um, the perception of flavor, it does affect the body. It does affect your psyche. So we look at an artificial sweetener and we think it's got zero calories. Therefore, it's inert. It has no effect on me. That's not true. You taste it, right? You taste it. That palatability that it, that it provides makes you want to overeat. It just does. And this is why 
artificial sweeteners have yet to have to, to show that they cause people to lose weight. The only time studies have shown that artificial sweeteners cause weight loss is when people's calories are totally controlled. In other words, researchers give people less calories because they replaced sugar with artificial sweeteners. But when people on their own, and there's countless studies on this, when people on their own say, oh, I want to lose weight, so I'm going to start having artificial sweetener, uh, sweetened sodas instead of sugar sodas, so that should reduce my calories. They don't lose weight. Why? Because it, they just end up filling those calories by eating more. So yeah, I would say get rid of them. Also, when you become more aware of what's in your food, when you go through this process, you know, artificially sweetened beverages, for example, you end up removing a barrier that tends to make us take pause, right? So if I'm at home and I have a soda and I'm, I'm someone that's aware of food, I may say to myself like, okay, here's 120 calories. Here's 30 something grams of sugar. I think I'll just have one, right? But artificially sweetened beverages, we tend to say it's zero calories. I guess I can have as many as I want. And it, but, but it's still, remember, it encourages you to want to overeat. And studies show this time and time again. So I am not in favor of artificial sweeteners as a way to lose, as a way to lose weight. Now, if you want to have them because you like their taste, I mean, whatever. But if you're doing it to lose weight, it won't work. It never works. It, again, unless you're someone who counts every single calorie and controls everything, which is a very strange way to live, and that's really not a long-term solution either, um, it's, just, it's just not effective. So at the end of the book, you offer up five steps to live well and live long, and that includes staying connected. Why? Staying connected uh, in in the in the context of what I'm talking about. You mean connected to people around you and to the people that your your relationships. Right. You know, there was a study at a Stanford years ago that, and this this was interesting. I remember when I read this, it was it was a bit fascinating to me. This study showed that having poor relationships was as bad for your health as smoking a pack of cigarettes every single day. Right. So, when we think of health especially in modern societies, we tend to think of uh, diet and exercise. But we don't consider that health really is a, a sphere that encompasses quite, quite a bit more than that, right? There's sleep is in there. That's a bit more obvious. The relationships with the people around you, that's very important for health. Having a spiritual or meditative practice is very important. Studies show it gives us a sense of purpose and meaning, uh, especially when life is very challenging. That's very important for health as well. We have to consider all of these things. You know, I see people in my space, in the fitness space, fitness influencers, for example, that substitute relationships for workouts or relationships for eating a perfect diet, right? So they, they can't go out. They don't meet with friends. They've got bad relationships, but they work out consistently and they eat really good all the time. They're also uh, at a health deficit as a result. You know, humans are social creatures. Having good relationships feeds our health, just like exercise and just like eating right. It's very, very important. And I touched on that in the book because I wanted to make sure that I was balanced, that I covered all the things that were important, not just exercise and nutrition. Sal Stefano is a personal trainer, co-founder of Mind Pump Media, co-host of the Mind Pump podcast, and the author of The Resistance Training Revolution, The No Cardio Way to Burn Fat and Age-Proof Your Body in Only 60 Minutes a Week. Sal, thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for this important book. No problem. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks as well to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for listening. 
Join me next time when I speak with cognitive scientist and former Obama White House advisor Maya Shunker about why change is so beneficial to our evolution. You can listen, learn, and subscribe at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.